everybody and welcome to episode 29 of the Auto Movie Podcast where we talk about all things automotive in movies, TV and online. In this week's quarantine light news, what's been happening Marty? Well, Instagram provides the first story where friend of the show Al Clark posted a lovely, lovely photograph of Sir Sterling Moss with a Jaguar. It is a Jaguar, right? Yeah. Good. Just had to check because it's vintage cars and I struggle with vintage cars because they all kind of look all low and swoopy and the same. Sorry, vintage car fans. There's a gorgeous <laughs> photo of Sterling Moss at what looks to be the pits at Rem. I think so. Al Clark has basically dropped the news that he's had a documentary in the can since 2012 about Sterling Moss and Norman Jewis telling the story of the invention of the automobile disc brake. This was shot and edited and for reasons he doesn't stay it never got screened and it's now coming to sky documentaries on friday the 7th of august um completely re-edited by al and i must admit i'm really excited about this because you know it's a friend putting stuff out and it's going to be on sky documentaries which i think chris mentioned in a previous podcast there's some great motor racing documentaries on sky at the moment some really great stuff so if you haven't seen it and you do have sky check out all the stuff that's on there at the moment because you can get tons of great stuff on demand plus this. I'm really looking forward to this because I am fascinated by how endurance racing, possibly more than Formula One, has contributed to the development of the the car with things like mm. disc braking, windscreen wipers and so on. I really want to see this. I'm really, really looking forward to it. I mean, Al's a cracking filmmaker. He's done a lot of commercial work. He's done all sorts of really great stuff. But your point about the evolution of cars for endurance racing, remember a lot of the original motor races were done as reliability trials. They were there to show how reliable these newfangled horseless carriages were. <laughs> yeah, it's a fair point. So I, I really like the idea of of the documentary telling the story of the disc brake. It sounds very dry and very dull, but I have no doubt that it won't be, especially if they've got Sir Sterling Moss involved and it traces its history through racing rather than here is a piston that clamps a disc and uses hydraulic pressure to slow a car down. <laughs> the end. I know it won't be like that. Um, as a quick aside, if you don't know who Al Clark is, please go and listen to the Intermission podcast where he came on and shed any number of secrets on how commercial automotive filming is done and was just generally a brilliant guest. Please go and check that one out. As we record this, there has been news of a 35th anniversary edition of Back to the Future coming out, which is one of my f most favourite films of all time. It's notable for a few reasons. One, it's in 4K, so I've got to go and buy it. it <laughs> Two, you need to go and buy a 4K television I so that need, you can watch it in 4K. I also need a 4K television and a 4K disc player thingy. We should say that Back to the Future is on this podcast because it features the DeLorean, which is an amazing looking car, even though it's actually a bit rubbish. Rubbish is my word of the day. Maybe I should say shit. It's actually a bit shit. <laughs> uh, we've covered this in a previous podcast where we chose movie cars that we loved. Uh, and Chris picked the DeLorean for Back to the Future. And yep. I think I chose the 250 California from Ferris Bueller's Day Off. Yep. Um, However, we should talk about what makes this a new and exciting DVD release because... There's 35 seconds of unseen footage. <laughs> There's three more frames. No, 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 no. 
It includes previously unseen auditions, including Ben Stiller reading for Marty McFly, which is a bit kind of just like, what? You also get a look around Back to the Future props, a behind the scenes of Back to the Future the musical. Oh, this is scraping the barrel. You're <laughs> buying this because you want to see Back to the Future again, even sharper than before. Yes, which if, if you've ever seen the 4K release of Ghostbusters, it does kind of show up the limits of 80s visual effects where you can kind of, you can see through stone mascots and, yeah, you know, some... Some of the uh, some of the mats don't quite line up. Anyway, this is all the stuff that George Lucas wasted ages on fixing in in the uh, whichever re-release of the original Star Wars trilogy it was. And I get it, but yes, it as you start to get more and more pixels on the screen, it becomes more and more difficult to disguise old effects. That being said, I'm sure it won't stop many of you from going out and buying Back to the Future, especially if you're of a, an age that we are, where you watched it growing up <laughs> and wanted a hoverboard. Well. If you get one of the limited edition early releases of the box set, at least in the US, it actually comes with a floating hoverboard. No, it doesn't. No, no, it does. Do you remember those skateboards? Oh, is this that magnet thing? Yeah, you remember those little skateboards you used to get that you should like ride with your fingertips? Yeah, do, yes. It's one of those, and it comes with a magnetic base. So you can like push the hoverboard back and forth, and it'll like levitate with magnets. Oh, that's cool. It's a shame they're not superconducting magnets, but that might be a teeny bit dangerous. <laughs> also, I, I think you'd struggle to do that for like forty pounds. <laughs> yes, that might be. There might need to be a few zeros on the end of the price for that. Yes, but yes, if you if you do like Back to the Future, then you have a surprise nice thing coming out. Yeah. Speaking of Back to the Future, we're light on news this episode, but we have a couple of cracking documentaries to talk about because. In this episode, we're going to look at the downfall of legends in different documentaries. This is a slightly spurious title. It is. This works very well with Chris's documentary, which is called Framing John DeLorean, um, and a, a, a sidebar docu- uh, documentary from Carfection. It works a little less well for the documentary that I'm covering, but I get it anyway, so please bear with us. This is tenuous. <laughs> Yeah, I can't I can't disagree with that. As Marty mentioned earlier, Sky Documentaries has been just absolutely packed to the gunnels with amazing documentaries on all sorts of stuff. For this episode, I've picked Framing John DeLorean because we've talked about the trailer before on this podcast because it the trailer is a very interesting premise. And what the trailer sets up is basically you've got Alec Baldwin playing John DeLorean and psychoanalyzing John DeLorean through the medium of being John DeLorean. It's all a bit being John Malkovich. And I saw it on on Sky Documentaries. This isn't sponsored by Sky, but if you're listening to Sky, hello. (laughs) Um, As of this recording, we are currently the uh, 135th highest ranked uh, podcast in the automotive category. Well, let's go for 134. Well, true. Um, I wish that was a joke, but it's not. Um, So, where was I? So, when I saw this on Sky Documentaries, I thought, I've got to watch this and see what it actually is like. And as Marty just mentioned, my go-to documentary when it comes to DeLorean is DeLorean, the man, the car, the people. This is much more about John DeLorean, the man. It starts off with about 10 minutes of interviewing people who wanted to make John DeLorean films 
and never did for some reason or another all saying it's such a great story we wanted to make the film and we couldn't which seems slightly gloaty from um, the people actually then making a film about John DeLorean but what you've got is essentially a standard documentary about John DeLorean and they use a lot of talking heads a lot of interviews these lot of TV news footage surveillance footage where that's obviously applicable and then to kind of fill in the gaps they have these staged recreations of scenes around the delorean dinner table or in the police station to kind of fill in the narrative as it goes along so you've now got a documentary of talking heads and documentary footage and you've got this film of recreations using actors playing those people you then have behind the scenes of the film recreating effects, uh, recreating scenes that then go in the documentary. So you've kind of got three levels of film going on at once. Wait, it's recreating scenes from itself? No, no, it's the behind the scenes of the scenes being shot to fill in the gaps in the documentary. Right, so it's both documentary and also a behind the scenes on itself. Yes. (laughs) Right, okay. You've got these very actorly um, scenes where Alec Baldwin is in makeup and he's talking to somebody about trying to understand the man and what his process is to get into the head of John DeLorean. So when you're acting, you're not reading lines, you're becoming that person. And I'm like, right. And then there's also there's other bits as well that are cut in where it's literally behind the scenes of being on set where it's people talking to camera and it's the camera behind the camera that the person's talking to. And you're just like, wait, what on earth is, is this? What really, really frustrates me about this is that if you cut out all the acting bits, this is a really good documentary about John DeLorean. There is so much research that's gone into it. There is interviews with a whole array of people that we will get onto. To then have Alec Baldwin talking about his process to try and understand John DeLorean and never actually delivering any insight into John DeLorean is a bit weird. The cast itself is is good. I mean, I I, I kind of think... So Alec Baldwin tells a story at some point about he once met John DeLorean and John DeLorean said, I want you to play me in this film of my life, which then didn't become anything. And he's obviously taken this to heart and he sort of thinks it's some great blessing that he should always have played John DeLorean. And as soon as you get Alec Baldwin on board, you then get other people who are good actors Um I mean, most notably, you've got John DeLorean's wife is played by uh, Marina Baccarin from Deadpool. Yes. There's a lot of uh, what you like to call uh, that guy. Hey, it's that guy. It's that guy. Because they are just people that have, you know, there's like the thug that's been in kick-ass and there's just these sort of vaguely random people. At one point, actually, there's a makeup scene with, um, with Marina where she's talking about... John DeLorean's wife, who, who was basically a model. So John DeLorean, as he gets goes up and becomes more high profile within the car industry, divorces his wife, starts going out with models. She's a model. 
Um, and she says something on the lines of, this is what uh, this person must have been thinking. I mean, I don't know. I'm just guessing. But and you kind of go, yeah, that's the problem here, is that... Actually, you know what it's like? I've just remembered. Right. Do you remember that episode of Top Gear where they were talking about the French car industry? The one about Peugeots? Yes. Yes, because I was watching that yesterday and marvelling in its childishness where it basically portrays everyone who drives a Peugeot as being a reactionary old man. (laughs) And they take great peevish delight in driving around in first gear everywhere, failing to negotiate bends, (laughs) crashing into road signs, failing to park at a garden centre. It's so childishly spiteful. It's wonderful if you don't like Peugeots. So... This is the problem that I have with framing John DeLorean and with these actory bits is that they don't come across as that high budget, honestly. So what you've got is you'll have John DeLorean being interviewed. You'll have the person who he hired to set up the car company. You'll have somebody talking about car development. You'll have somebody talking about his uh, rise through Pontiac, for example. And then you cut away to a scene, which is like those ones where they're all sitting around the table drinking wine and being very, very French. (laughs) So it's basically like stupid pretend piss-take acting. It is. It is, except it's Alec Baldwin and and other people that you may recognise. But then he can go ham. He can very much deliver that kind of grossly over-the-top thing that you can imagine coming off as completely fake. But he plays it so earnestly. I don't think that's what he was doing. And this is... The real problem with it for me is that he's getting in the way of a good documentary. Honestly, I think if you cut that out, there wouldn't be that much, really, that you kind of go, oh, that doesn't make sense, or this isn't bridged very well. One thing that the film does really, really well is the biopic angle. And you have to remember, it's John DeLorean. It's not the cars. It's not really Back to the Future. That comes way, way, way towards the end. I mean, Bob Gale... It features in this, but then Bob Gale features in almost anything that involves DeLoreans. By about halfway through, you're at the cocaine bust. So that kind of gives you a bit of a sense of how much they're focusing on his kind of downfall and the court case. It doesn't rush through the earlier stuff. I mean, it's quite a long film, but there's definitely a sense of that is a sort of a, a real pivoting moment and then you kind of get into the fall, the aftermath of that, because a lot of biopics will stop when he gets busted. So that's the end of the dream. But then you've got the court case, which he was acquitted. You've got his kind of future life where he's going to DeLorean meets, where he becomes a born again Christian. Obviously, you can't interview John DeLorean anymore because he's no longer with us. There's some revelations about him and Colin Chapman, which were new to me. So. Lotus did a lot of the DeLorean engineering, that we know, very well, apparently, according to Andrew Frankel, when he recently drove a DeLorean. And what isn't so well known is that there seem to have been monies sent from DeLorean to Lotus, channeled through various different banks, and then cleaned and laundered and come that came back to John DeLorean, which is kind of a bit, oh, you know, that's new. And it kind of paints both Colin Chapman in a slightly different light than I really knew him for. Um, what this documentary also does is it talks to some of the people that were crossed by John DeLorean. There's one guy who he was 
brought on board to essentially develop the product line. And he, a guy called Bill Collins, and they have an actor playing Bill Collins, and they have the real Bob Collins um, being in, uh, Bill Collins being interviewed. And there is this story of him being brought in by John DeLorean to do one job and then kind of getting quietly sidelined, but nobody quite telling him. You've also got John DeLorean's daughter and adopted son also being interviewed. Both of them talk really openly about the pain and the suffering that they had as a result of being John DeLorean's children. It's a very unusual name. I can imagine that that is not a name you want to have while your father's being raked through the coals in the press. And also, if you talk to anybody about DeLorean from, what, 83 to kind of probably 2010, people know the DeLorean car and cocaine busts. And that's the two things. John DeLorean's daughter shows this artwork that she did at school where she's got a DeLorean kind of sketched out. And underneath there's this kind of timeline of magazine covers from the hero to the to the fallen. And she, it's got across the front of the bumper. It's got the DMC badge and it's a destroyed my childhood. And even more than that is John DeLorean's adopted son, Zach, who's interviewed and is very candid about what effect it had on him personally. The way that he feels about the cars, it seems like he's really trying to kind of distance himself, but it's this kind of driving reminder of his father and and everything else. But also there's a backstory that I don't think is really touched on where you see his house that he lives in now, and it's this tiny kind of musty little bedsit, and he's you know, he's unshaven. He is not privy to any sort of privilege or money or anything from this. He's just rejected so much. And he has so little to say that is good about John DeLorean. And I think the 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 whole episode has just damaged him so much. And he is open about that, gut-wrenchingly so. Because you've got people who lost their jobs. You've got the people who wanted to create this great car and didn't. You've got John DeLorean who got busted. And then shortly after the arrest, his wife left him. He didn't have the the model wife. He didn't have the car company. He went through all of this stuff, but then you've got the kind of the person or one of the people closest to him. And he, he, he sort of says at the end, a lot of people end the story at the drug bust. Or they end the story when he's acquitted in court and he he walks out of court with his arms held aloft and everything's okay. And what you should actually do is is he was sat at, at his uh, kitchen table trying to launch a new car company at the age of, um, I think it was possibly 80, but it was you know, another DMC. He was going to relaunch the DeLorean brand. He was sitting there having his breakfast, has a massive heart attack and dies. And John's son is there sort of saying like, God just went, yep, I've had enough of you. Off you go. That kind of unpacks slightly later in the film, but it's really it really shows the the damage that these sorts of stories have on other people because everybody focuses on the cars, the drugs, the success, the models, the girls, you know, all of this sort of stuff. But behind all of that was this kind of destruction of, of somebody who reached and reached and reached. There's um there's one point that's covered in both 
Alex Goy's documentary and also in this, of saying in order to get more funding from the government, they had to up production. So they had to create more cars, and if they get more cars, then that should create more jobs, and if they create more jobs, then they get more funding from the government. So DeLorean just kind of went, right, we're going to double production. And everyone's like, well, but we're not selling these. It's like, no, we're going to double production. We're going to sell them. Just because he needed the money, the drug bust ultimately, or the drug deal, was just so he could try and make more money. It was an act of desperation on his part. I mean, it was an act of stupidity on his part, but it was a desperation to try and raise more tens of millions of dollars to try and keep this dream alive. And somebody said in the film, basically, by the time they got to making cars, they'd run out of money. So 1983, I think it was, basically the receivers were brought in and that was the end of DeLorean. 1985, Back to the Future comes out, the whole world sees the DeLorean and it passes into one of the highest stratas of sort of public consciousness and pop culture and the company had gone bust. And if they'd kept the production lower, if they'd managed to get to 1985, you know, they'd, they'd gone through the difficult bit. I mean, you know, you and I know McLaren, the amount they learnt on the 12C before they then got to the next one and they got to the next one and they got to the next one. And bearing in mind, they'd built a car company from nothing to releasing a car in two years. And they'd built the factories, they'd found the people, they'd trained them, they'd built the organisation. So there's this question that the film raises about how could it have been different? How could you have just gotten there? How could you have been more sustainable? How could you have kept going just long enough for then the kind of the momentum to take over? I think it, it is a really good documentary about John DeLorean. I think if you're a car person, there is a lot in there because it does talk about the successes he had at Pontiac. It does talk about the politics of the American car industry and how John DeLorean was really playing those politics. And it kind of gives you... It does give you an insight into the man. I mean, they talk to people who work with him. They talk to contemporary road testers of the time, you know, of the car. It's a really, I think, holistic view of the man and the situation and all of those things. I think the idea of of having these kind of big name actors in to bridge the gaps in story is good. Particularly, you notice with some of the surveillance footage, it just isn't great quality. And if you're in a dark room with, you know, 80s video technology, you're not seeing a whole lot. So it's it's a good idea to recreate those things. But it kind of reminded me of the Williams documentary, which you still haven't seen, have you? No, I'm still refusing to watch it. So in Williams, they have um, Frank's wife being played by an actress kind of talking about her life. But it's you only ever see the back of her and she's kind of out of focus or it's it's not kind of looking at her face. They did something similar in the McLaren documentary. They had somebody playing young Bruce McLaren mm. doing the narration in the first person and they had actors sort of providing colour to some of the the tales of his young racing career where yes. he'd send tapes back to New Zealand. Mm. And the thought occurs to me that that would have been a great approach if you didn't have someone as starry and well-known as Alec Baldwin, if you just used jobbing actors. So let me ask you a question. If you've got a choice of one of these two documentaries to watch, do you watch Framing John DeLorean, Warts and All, or do you watch the Carfection Alex Goy doc? 
That's a really good question because I was re-watching Alex's documentary earlier today. And the thing that struck me about that was that it's two very complementary documentaries. The focus of the two is slightly different. And some of the tales that get told in one don't get told in the other. I think if your interest is in the DeLorean car, in what it did to Northern Ireland in what it did to the people, how they did it, how they took this American who managed to get millions out of the government to build a car factory. And you know, if that is your interest, absolutely watch the Alex Goy documentary because I think that gives you far more about everything that went on around DeLorean Motor Company. Motor Company? Motor Cars? It's DeLorean Motor Company, isn't it? Yeah, it gives you far more around that than framing John DeLorean does. If you're interested in the in the rise of John DeLorean, in what he did in product development, in what he did politically, if you are interested in people like Steve Jobs, for example, you know, the real kind of iconoclast people that draw others to them and can lead a vision and a dream and can do things like that absolutely watch framing john delorean well i like cars and i don't like people so <laughs> i'm going to give the car faction one a watch but Definitely. that was a spot on review um i have something slightly different this is a documentary we mentioned a few episodes ago called ferrari race to immortality uh this was released in 2017 quite soon after the mclaren and williams documentaries that we've covered in earlier episodes it's very poorly titled that's the first mm. thing I want to get off the bat. This is not about Ferrari the company. This is barely about Ferrari the man. This is about the people that drove for Ferrari in the 50s, in that golden age of gleaming Kodachrome and light leaks and footage <laughs> of beautiful-looking cigar-shaped death traps racing around circuits with no barriers and hay bales. And It's a very moving documentary, because of its subject matter. The documentary kind of revolves around the partnership of Mike Hawthorne and Peter Collins uh, with sort of starring roles from some of the Italian drivers of the age that drove for Ferrari. Uh, it takes the kind of Senna-like mould of period footage with contemporary talking heads over the top. But you never see the talking heads, which I think is a really good move. This is almost all glorious vintage footage and there is a credit right at the end of the movie for a chap called Richard Wiseman who's the film archivist and he's found all this footage I've no idea if some of this came out of the FOM archives oh, wow. a lot of it for me seems to have just come from private collectors and so on because it's all very genuine it's all very vintage it's all gloriously colored in that period feel where everything's a bit blue and a bit yellow and and the cars are very slightly faded we're used to the kind of 4k ultra hd pop of modern formula one cars and you go back to this and you see film grain and shaky shaky cam and the like but it takes you back to those times really effectively and it's one of my favorite things about the movie is all this beautiful period racing footage mm. and there's a little bit of um the pathé cinema man narrating but i'm not going to do i'm not going to do the impression because an awful lot of this is narrated by three very well respected formula one 
journalists and historians. So you've got Richard Williams, uh, who was one of the narrators on Senna, actually, one of the more high-profile narrators on Senna, and he provides a lot of colour. There's some recollections from Nigel Roebuck, who has been around forever commentating on F1, but has a particular love, I think, for this period of Formula One. Uh, And there's Doug Nye, who is a motor racing historian. He does a column in Motorsport magazine, has done for years, but he's, he's providing the other side of it with more info on on some of the peripheral characters and between them they guide you through this period of motor racing of F1 and sometimes Le Mans and sometimes road racing like the Mille Miglia and because they're all so knowledgeable and because they're all able to speak with such gravitas on the subject and let's not beat about the bush this is not a cheery documentary oh god no there is some moments of of joy um, where I think of Peter Collins winning the British Grand Prix in 1958, where he just dominates. There's a moment of joy, but by and large, this is laden with not doom and gloom, but it, it the spectre of death hangs over this in almost every frame, because if you know anything about Formula One, you know that almost everybody you're watching dies. And almost everybody you're watching dies at the wheel of a Formula One car. Mm. So as I said, this revolves around Mike Hawthorne and Peter Collins and it starts around the kind of the 1955 Le Mans race where Mike Hawthorne won driving a Jag, not a Ferrari in that occasion. Um, but there's an accident which famously ended in uh, ended Mercedes' involvement in motor racing until quite recently. Um, an awful lot of deaths, which I don't wish to go into. There's, again, with a lot of these documentaries like we touched on in, in previous episodes... For me, slightly too much of the footage where I feel like you can, we know what happens, please cut before you show things I don't wish to see. It's blurry and it's old footage and so on, but even so I feel a little respect for the dead might be nice. And this documentary continues through 1956-7 and wraps up when Mike Hawthorne wins the F1 World Championship with Ferrari in 1958. Uh, It's directed by Daryl Goodrich, And like we said, it's got very, very little to do with Enzo Ferrari, the man. There are some voiceovers that are a little cryptic. There are some quotes that feel almost like he's reading them out of a book. But you get very little about why this man goes racing. There's a very short bit at the start talking about his his teenage years and how he liked cars. And it jumps immediately to there's a Ferrari racing team and they make cars and they win everything. And everyone wants to drive for them you don't get any insight into the man as to why he manipulates these drivers against one another, why he keeps them in a high state of stress because he believes that they are, they perform better that way. Something which has been disproven by any number of um, great motor racing dynasties, Ferrari and Michael Schumacher, for example, they Mm. didn't keep him in a high state of stress. They made him super comfortable and he won lots of things for them. Um, But you don't get any of that. It's about the drivers and they go through the famous drivers that drove for Ferrari in this period. So you've got Luigi Musso, you have Alfonso de Portago alongside Mike Hawthorne and Peter Collins. There's a brief moment of um, Fangio driving for Ferrari and famously Peter Collins gives his car up to allow Fangio to win, which is just something you watch now and you think that had never happened. There's no driver on the grid that would do that for their teammate. 
also, it's funny seeing the footage of Sterling Moss. I know he's not sort of part of the team, but you kind of forget with Sterling Moss. I mean, I've I've only ever sort of seen him as like an older man. But when you see him kind of young and trim, it's always, there's always a bit of a sort of Jason Statham swagger about him. Yeah, I did notice that when I was looking at him, I'm going, yeah, you, you were losing your hair even back then, but you're right. He's kind of young and virile and strapping and wandering around like he owns the place, which he pretty much does <laughs> as the successor to Fangio's crown of best racing driver. Um, but I think one thing I noticed with all of these is these drivers are all kind of impossibly fighter pilot handsome. Um, if they are, you know, the Brits or they're dark and brooding and handsome if they're the Italians. <laughs> As, it's kind of glorious seeing all these very charismatic men being put through the grinder in some respects. And I say glorious, it's a very bittersweet watch mm. because if you're a student of F1, you know what's coming. And it's very poignant watching these, watching them win races, watching them drive and... I think the documentary plays on your emotions a little. There's a very subtle score, by and large, which does kind of lead you into thinking, uh-oh, something bad's going to happen. It gets a bit very bombastic towards the end for no good reason I can see. <laughs> it was doing a really good job of being subtle and then it suddenly jumps up there. Um, but like I say, there's a poignancy and, and, and almost a dread in keeping watching it because you know what's coming. In particular, I found the narration from a lady called Louise King, an American, who was married to Peter Collins. She lends a lot of humanity to him because obviously he can't speak for himself and uh, not very many of his contemporaries are still alive in order to provide any colour. So she provides an awful lot of insight into what he was thinking and what he was feeling. Um, we get some interesting racing driver insight from Tony Brooks, who was racing at the same time when Collins was killed at the Nürburgring in 1958, describing what happened. There's some heartbreaking footage of, of Mike Hawthorne being asked about his friend, presumably very shortly afterwards, being asked what happened, being asked how fast they were going through the corner, and you can see he wants to be anywhere else but there. This is absolutely worth a watch. Mm. For anyone who is a fan of racing documentaries, not just Formula One, but racing documentaries, this is absolutely worth a watch. Go in forewarned that it is not necessarily always an easy watch, that it's a very serious documentary. There are little moments of lightheartedness around the, the beginning where you see racing drivers on their off days, but by and large, as the documentary builds towards its climax, it's unrelenting death after death. I'm not messing about here. That is exactly what happens. Yeah. There's a, a horrible moment where they describe how one of the Ferrari drivers is called to set the lap record at um, Ferrari's test circuit they share with Maserati. And I think Maserati had taken the lap record and Enzo Ferrari was insistent that they had to go and take it back. So he sends one of his contracted drivers out and inevitably the driver crashes and the car ends up in some grandstand. He's thrown out, he's mortally wounded, all for the sake of a lap time which tells you all you really need to know about what Enzo Ferrari truly cared about. That's the thing I always come away from with this documentary is is a hatred of the man for being so callous. But also there's a side part of me thinking, I wish I knew why he was so callous. And he's such an enigmatic figure anyway. He gave very few interviews, even back then. And as he got older, fewer still, uh, he just became this myth in dark glasses. 
And so you're left wondering what on earth possessed him to be so callous. Was there a moment earlier on in it where he's talking about a driver who he was especially close to? There are moments where he's friendly with the drivers and it could be that that is much like um, Colin Chapman with Jim Clark, Mm. not wanting to get close, or Bernie Eccleston with Jochen Rindt, you know, don't get close to drivers after one of them's taken from you. That's not explicitly spelled out here in the way that it is with with those two individuals. Um, mm. But it's quite possible they don't really get into that. And that's, that's the source of the frustration with this, because while this is a great documentary about 50s racing drivers racing for Ferrari, it is a terrible documentary about Ferrari the motor company or Ferrari the man. Yeah. And I feel like it, it should have had a different title. There's a whiff of cash in about this, where they saw, oh, there's a documentary about McLaren, there's a documentary about Williams, we should get one about Ferrari, because they, of course, are the most famous racing name. Mm. And if that was the intent, they bungled it. It's It's got very little to do with Ferrari. And I would be fascinated to see a documentary that does chart the history of Ferrari, the motor company. And if there are Ferrari fans out there that know of such a thing, I'm looking at you, Matt, um, <laughs> please do let us know because I'd be fascinated to, to watch this because there is a delight in watching all of these glorious racing cars, some impossibly pretty cars being raced properly. And the kinds of cars that you see now gleaming and sometimes being peddled pretty quickly around Goodwood. But by and large, you see them come up on auction sites and, you know, record amount paid for at Bonham's auction or wherever. They're not really automobiles anymore. They're assets. And there's a joy to watching them be used as cars and be driven hard and and drifting sideways in that glorious (laughs) kind of cross-ply tyres, you know, um, the way that you see. Plus also, I mean, I I texted you while I was watching it and I said the cars of that era are impossibly beautiful. But then you then also get this other look of the junior formula cars that look like the most rickety sheds you can possibly imagine with the drivers. I mean, they're almost leaning over as much as MotoGP riders. They've probably got their elbows on the ground as they're going around the corners. I know, and you watch these and I have a sort of, there's again a, a sort of double feeling with the cars. Yes, they're glorious. Yes, they're beautiful. But they're also basically four-wheeled bombs. Oh, God, And yeah. you see this in the, the 1955 um, Le Mans crash, the car flips upside down on the bales and is engulfed in flames immediately. Um, there's footage of cars catching fire in the pits. It, you know, that was the risk. It's A, there's no such thing as safety or impact structures or anything. Drivers wanted to be thrown clear in the hope that they would survive. And as soon as the car hits the ground, it catches fire. There is an excellent documentary that I would love to get onto a, very, a podcast very soon about Formula One's safety development uh, called F1 Life at the Limit, which is possibly my favourite Formula One documentary of all time. Mm. It's so good. And it it does talk about these cars, but it, in a broader sense, it's not just focused on the 50s and Ferrari. It goes through all of the eras and you get more of a feel for why the drivers raced the way they did and then how things progressed so slowly until modern times and then Ooh. suddenly they jump and they jump and and now we're in the, the case where things like the halo in f1 and the aero screen in indy are probably saving lives almost immediately they're introduced and i do wonder what the drivers of the 50s 
would think of the racing cars you see now. <laughs> so Ferrari raced to immortality. Yes, the drivers that drove for them did become immortal, but they had to die to get there. Mm. And I'm not sure that they would have accepted that bargain. Some of them maybe, but the callousness of Enzo Ferrari comes across just as much as the the glory of seeing these guys race these cars at the limit. And it can be a difficult watch because of that, but do watch it. Would you say this is something that would appeal to a general audience if properly briefed, or do you think this is more of a uh, more of a diehard racing fan film? I think it's more towards the latter. I, if I think about showing this to my wife, who does like Formula One or does like motor racing and is quite tolerant of such things, I'm not sure she'd want to watch this because of the subject matter, because of the tone. And because it is quite detailed and quite nerdy, mm. I think that there's a there's a focus on maybe the people are interesting enough. But it, I think if you were to take a bit of the racing out and make it a bit more about the people, perhaps I don't know. I think it is more for a a medium to keen motor racing fan rather than the casual. Uh, you know, if you, if maybe if someone came across this on on Sky documentaries or Netflix or wherever, and was just oh it's interesting i think you'd have to have some degree of motorsport nerdery in your blood in order to to alight on this and want to watch it both of these documentaries can be found on sky documentaries as well as some of the usual streaming platforms by the way if you want to ever find anything on a streaming platform there's a great website i found called justwatch.com which will help you find these things most of the time because, let's face it, the streaming services, interfaces and search systems are not very good. Indeed, indeed. Let's move on now onto slightly happier things. Before we get into our YouTube picks of the week, first we have to cover our perennial feature, what has Heron New Catchpole been up to this week? And I very, very much enjoyed his review of the Honda E, which... As an electric car driver, um, not one who believes it's a dead end, but one who sees that it has a viable place in the marketplace. Oh, you poor deluded fool. Look, it already has mass adoption. It is easier to charge. It is part of a technology which is going to be much more widespread in the future as we get into micro-generation, household battery storage. It can become its own power wall. It is already gaining market share in a way that things like hydrogen aren't. It's heavy and it's rubbish. The end. Unfortunately, while you may think other solutions are technically better, Mr. Betamax, it is gaining market adoption. Anyway, Henry Catchpole, Hondery, great review, very fair, very balanced. It does involve him at one point ironing his own T-shirt from a plug socket within the Hondery. Also, he does make a very great point that the dashboard is very reminiscent of a 70s entertainment system. I strongly recommend it. It's a very good review. It's the usual wit and humour. It's balanced in terms of being an EV review. It's not overly positive or negative. I think it's very balanced. It's well worth a watch, and I quite want a Honda E. Yeah, I haven't seen this one yet, because I kind of looked at it and went, I'm not really the target audience for this kind of car, <laughs> but it's a Henry Catchpole review, so I feel like I should watch it. So I'm going to watch it. However, also on electric car theme, before I get to my YouTube pick of the week, um, Vaughan Gittings Jr. has the most bonkers Mustang Mach-E you can possibly imagine with something like 1,400 horsepower, basically set up to do Jim Carnery stuff. Um, I think it's probably going to be fairly similar to the 
Is it the Volkswagen IDR? Yes. Because what they've essentially done is it's got a 58 kilowatt, kilowatt hour battery pack, all match cells, and instead of having two electric motors, it has seven. So, but I, only four wheels, right? Four wheels, seven motors. Um, so I don't think it's going to have the longest range. I think it might do one run at the Goodwood Hill, coast back down, then have to be charged for six hours. Yeah, tell me again how this is the technology of the future. Because, right, go and drive like the Hoonigan Mustang from your house to the south of France and get out at the far end and tell me how much you hate the internal combustion engine and everything about it. It's a big, silly halo car that seems to have been designed by a seven-year-old to basically go round and round and round in circles until all the tyres burst while looking amazing. However, my pick for this week is... (laughs) He says, moving on quickly without breathing. (laughs) Jay Leno's Garage from an old episode with Bob Gale and a couple of people who restored one of the original hero DeLoreans from Back to the Future... Unfortunately, they don't have that car. I think it's now at the Peterson Museum, possibly. Um, But they are talking about what it takes to build an incredibly faithful DeLorean Back to the Future Time Machine replica. I still haven't seen that documentary about the rebuilding of the hero DeLorean called uh, Outer Time. So if anybody has a way that I can legally get this in the UK, please let me know. I've been I've been searching. I haven't found anywhere that has it legally or illegally, for that matter. Yeah, it's a bit of a uh, a bit of a ghost. But if you like your DeLoreans, if you like Back to the Future, particularly if you like movie props and movie prop replicas, and you watch Adam Savage's Tested Channel, you will like this. This is going to be our last episode before we take a bit of a summer break. So rather than picking a car channel, I will pick something of a palate cleanser. And my non-car YouTube channel pick is called First We Feast. Now, some of you will know this. For those of you who don't, they do a show on that channel called uh, Hot Ones. And it is the best interview format I've ever seen in my life. So it's presented by uh by one presenter who him and his team do fantastic research he has these really insightful deep questions and he proposes them to a celebrity and we are talking big name celebrities while going through an assortment of chicken wings from least spicy to incredibly spicy like basically for each question they then eat a hotter and hotter chicken wing until they get to a point where they can't think straight, let alone answer a question. And it's this fantastic scale of talking to somebody like Gordon Ramsay, for example, or uh, Margot Robbie or Tenacious D. And there's like 10 series of this. So you're going to find somebody who's going to go, really, them? And they're just getting kind of more and more stoned on this hot sauce as they go down these wings until like... They reach a point where they just cannot focus on life or anything anymore. And if you want to ask somebody questions while getting them out of their comfort zone, it's fantastic and compelling, and I strongly watch it. And I guarantee if you start watching it, and if you like the format, you will watch a dozen before we come back and do our next episode. Interesting. I I have heard about this channel. I've never watched it uh, because I don't like hot wings. So I kind of go, well, yeah, I'm just going to watch people be uncomfortable and sweaty. (laughs) I I will say, 
it's not done in any way as a kind of a torture or a punishment. There is nothing statistic about it. And the interview itself is really, really, really good. It's really well-informed, really insightful. The guy who does it is is really good at building rapport and will get these really interesting, honest answers out of people. But at the same time, there's this, this nudging little thing in the background. And I... I, I Pick, find one, watch it. Let me know what you think in the next episode. Will do, will do. So I, uh, I've stuck to the brief. Chris has diverged slightly in a sneaky manner. <laughs> I am rapidly falling in love with the old Aston Martin DB9. I have been back and watched the Top Gear race between the DB9 and the train to Monaco, which I love, even though it's oh, kind God, of yeah. quite short by modern Top Gear standards, but it's still lovely. And I've sought out Alex Goy. He's coming up a lot in this podcast. When Carfection was called X-Car, he did a review of the last of the previous generation of DB9, uh, which I have also watched. And then I found myself, <laughs> as you do, going, well, what about the racing version? So... My video is the Aston Martin DBR9 GT1 Racer. Uh, It's from Sam Hancock's YouTube channel, and he's talking about a series set up a couple of years ago to allow these sort of 90s and early 2000s GT racing cars to do something useful and and actually be raced in anger again. So, you know, there's shots of 996-era Porsche racing cars uh, there's a fantastic Viper rumbling along with about four miles worth of bonnet and a piece of drain pipe for an exhaust. <laughs> and it just, yeah, it looks fantastic. Don't get me right, it's amazing. And the DBR9, which is in that gorgeous Aston Martin racing green uh, with a big wing and no no livery, no stickers on it, tearing around what I think is Rockingham circuit in the UK. And just glorious. There's some onboard footage which was supposed to be from Sam driving it, but for whatever reason, uh, I think his his helmet cam didn't work. So the onboard footage you get is from uh, Aston Martin factory driver Darren Turner, and it's a little wobbly because the cameras are mounted to his his helmet, and his helmet moves around a lot because this is quite a physical car. But it's glorious. It sounds incredible. It still looks like it's a physical car to drive. This is not like the current GT3 cars, which are much more user-friendly. They're designed for amateur drivers to get the best out of as well as the pros. This is for proper full top flight factory pros who are going to need all their wits about them to get the best out of it. And it's glorious. And if you like big V12 racing cars, then <laughs> you need to be watching this with the sound turned up. Let me put it that way. Uh, and my YouTube channel is not a non-car-y one because Chris bust that rule onto me just before we recorded and I didn't have the choice. <laughs> so uh, I found this channel purely by surfing around. It's a channel called Driver61. And this is a gentleman who has a whole, stu- whole bunch of stuff about F1. There's... Loads of, uh, of videos about how to find lap time on track. There's a series of videos called Pro Driver Breaks Down F1, where a pro driver and coach called Scott Mansell breaks down drivers' driving styles. So Alonso's bizarre steering, which if you've w- watched F1 during the mid-2000s where they had grooved tyres, you'll remember what Alonso used to do for steering. It was the oddest thing, but it worked for him. There's uh, a video on Senna's famous sort of throttle stabbing technique he used to use to keep the, the turbo boost up and rotate the car in the corners. There's videos on the development of F1 helmets. It's 
full of really, really interesting stuff if you're into racing and F1. And I can't recommend them enough. They're all full of good tips. There's the the the, the series Everything You Need to Be Faster on Track, The Driver's University. I am absolutely going to watch all of those. I won't get any faster, <laughs> but I'm going to watch them anyway. So do give that a watch. Driver 61, the link will be in the show notes. But if oh, you're wow. interested in F1 or track driving or the the techniques behind driving quickly, then this is a must-watch. Interesting. Scott Mansell is a really interesting name because I remember he was driving an old Benetton in the Euro Boss series when he was like 20 or something. He was really, really young. And he w- I think he might even have held the lap record for the Brands Hatch Indie Circuit of like 58 seconds or something. It's a shame that F1 isn't going to Brands Hatch again because it's going everywhere else. It's going to look places like Portimao and Mugello and Imola and Thruxton and Knock Hill. <laughs> Cadwell Park. <laughs> Because ah the first first Grand Prix of Blyton, <laughs> it's not going to some of those places. Disclaimer. But what I do find interesting is that the lap records at all of those tracks are probably held by you know Le Mans cars or maybe some guy in a single seater who bought you know in Ferrari's Corsa Cliente program, and they're all about to be smashed by modern F1 machinery. Um, an addendum to the Aston Martin video I was talking about, Chris has just texted me a race car's direct link to a DBR9 GT1 chassis that is for sale. Of course, it's POA. Of course, well, it's not <laughs> like I'm going to go out and buy a racing car. I don't have any money. Uh, but they do look glorious. Even with the livery on, that, that racing green looks tremendous. So if you are sat on a pile of money you don't know what to do with, go and buy one of those. <laughs> You could, I can also point you at a GT1 Maserati MC12. No, never like the MC12. I think it's horrible. There's also a, I think it's a GT2 Viper that I know is for sale. And also, I think it's a GT1 Ford GT run by the Mark VDS team, which, my God, that car just looks better and better with each. It looks good year. as a racing car. I can remember seeing them at the Nürburgring n24 in like 2012 or something uh yeah they looked great then not as good as the dbr9 though however getting back to scott mansell i've just googled guess what his lap record for the brands hatch indie circuit in 2004 was set at oh i don't know uh 49 seconds no less really quite on yes. bike. what was he driving uh it was um a Mid-90s Benetton. All right. F1 35 car. seconds. A little bit more. 38. 38 seconds for a lap. God, is that... Oh, we've got to find on board of that somewhere. <laughs> I thought the DTM people might have had it at something like 50 seconds or something, but that has to be one of the shortest lap records there is. Yeah. I'd, I'd, it's, he's also broken lap records at Silverstone Donington Park. Mm. Yeah, not now he hasn't. Donington maybe, yeah, <laughs> but not, not at Silverstone. Anyway... That is it for this episode of the Auto Movie Podcast. If you've enjoyed either of those documentaries, um, then do please tell us. And if you fancy leaving us a nice review, that always helps spread the word. Um, everyone that you leave does help immensely, and thank you all for listening. We're going to go off and have a summer break. But in the meantime, thank you all very, very much for listening, and we'll see you soon. See you after the summer. Bye.